What up artists? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity and you know maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. Welcome to Art Pays Me. Today we have A Harmony. What's up? Welcome. Hey, thank you. So, like, I know you as a FMC from Landmine Hip Hop. (laughs) That is taking it way back. (laughs) Way back, way back. So I knew, like, uh, Maul and, and Prophecy and those guys are rappers that I knew from Bermuda. And they told me they uh, were adding this girl to the clique and she's dope. So ever since I've been kind of like following and and then like over the years, I don't really talk to those guys that much anymore, but you're on my, my Twitter feed and you're just always popping up with the fire tweets. And <laughs> uh, you know what, and then at the, and, and then, you know, as the years went on too, like you've actually gone on to become like a legit social commentator on recognized platforms. You're not just one of these Twitter people, like you actually are in the media and writing stuff and commenting on stuff for people who actually like with a real audience. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So w- what is it that you actually do? So uh, I am a writer, um, and then through the writing, uh, people just keep commenting me to, I mean, contacting me to comment on things. So um, yeah, writer, and I still credit myself as an MC. The last time I put out uh, music was in 2015, so it's been a while, but it's one of those things that I don't think you can ever truly put away. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I, I am a hip hop contributor at Exclaim Magazine, which is a, a national music magazine here in Canada. And then um, every once in a while, on a on a semi regular basis, I appear on the uh, Q This music panel on CBC uh, CBC Q, which is like an arts uh, entertainment radio show hosted by Tom Power on CBC. So yeah, that is my current iteration. Okay. I I actually listened to um, the episode where you kind of talked about battle rap culture, and I might want to dig into that a little later. It was interesting. Yeah, um, that was I, my first. That was my first cue. This panel, actually, the first oh, one I it? ever did. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I gotta say, dude was wilding when he said people want to see Drake hop in the ring. I don't want to see. That. <laughs> okay, I don't. I have very passionate opinions on Drake that sometimes get me in trouble. So Yeah, you gotta root for the home team, right? So it's like, oh Canadian. <laughs> but yeah, I'll, 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 I thought he was wilding with that one. Um, so like you interview musicians, correct? Or like you just write I, up with them? I do, I do. I interview musicians as well. And I kinda so you know, me transitioning from emceeing myself to kind of writing about other artists was actually a pretty natural transition for me. I always liked to write. Um, and, and as a kid, like I always 
was like this multifaceted person who would write songs, but would also write like short stories. And I would write kind of news articles for fake magazines that I made up and things like that. So it actually was a pretty natural transition. Um, And then I remember, so before I actually started, uh, you know, rapping and performing myself, I was one of like those early bloggers back in the MySpace era um, who wrote about music. And it was partly because I was just too shy. Like I always loved to sing and to, uh, you know, write my own songs, but I was always too shy to perform them. Um, So my way of keeping close to music or keeping close to the scene was to write about other artists. And then uh, that was actually how I, you know, it's been so long since I uh, met those those people in Landmine that I can't remember quite how I met them, but I feel like it was through my MySpace blogging days. And through that, they kind of encouraged me to start performing and, and, and rapping and things like that. So it was actually something that I always uh, oscillated between the writing and the performing and kind of doing the artist side of music. Um, So fast forward to today, I feel like uh, having that experience of being a recording artist and being, um, you know, a songwriter and a rapper myself, I feel like it brings a different perspective to my music journalism. Like I'm able to critique things and I'm able to interview other artists kind of on a peer to peer level. And it's not to say, you know, that I'm like, you know, a Grammy award winning artist, like some of the people that I've interviewed, but you still uh, bring that perspective to the table of, okay, I know what it's like to, you know, sit in the studio and record. And I know what it's like to stay up all night writing a song or like recording it over and over to get the perfect take. And I know what it's like to get on stage and perform with people. And I know what kind of, uh, what kind of experiences and what kind of passions go into creating albums and things like that and, and, and what kind of process goes into it. And so I'm able to bring that sensitivity and that perspective to my interviews and uh, to my reviews and to everything that I write. Yeah, I love that. And it, it gives you a certain amount of legitimacy. It's like you're not just popping off. Like you, when you're, when you're critical of something, it's coming from a legit standpoint of, of knowing what it took to create when someone, yeah. you know? Right. And that, that was always super important to me, um, having that legitimacy and having that experience. And so not only was I a recording artist, but I also went to a music business school out in Toronto called the Harris Institute for the Arts. And that's where I learned the entire business side of the industry. And I had plans at that time to kind of manage myself and possibly manage other artists. Uh, so I learned the ins and outs and, and, and Harris really prepares you to be a well-rounded artist in that you can, uh, you learn the ins and outs of engineering and actually, uh, the like physical or technical side of recording music, but you also learn, you know, contract law and you learn how to route a tour and you learn how to build your own website and write your own press releases. Like it's a very well-rounded, uh, education and you're being taught by people who are actually working in the industry. So you're getting real like peer-to-peer experience. So I'm pretty well versed in all areas of music from like the technical side, the creation side, the creative side, the performing side, like both sides of the mic. Um, and I think that brings, like I said, really good perspective to my journalism. And, and like you said, adds legitimacy, which was really important to me. I never wanted to be one of those people who's just, you know, talking at the side of their face 
somebody who just really loves, like, I think some people think that just because they really love music that they're well-versed in it and they know about it and they can speak with authority on things. And I never wanted to be that person. I wanted to be educated and bring a full perspective and a well-rounded perspective to my writing and to my, uh, my music creation. Mm, yeah, actually, I kind of, for me too, from, from this podcast perspective, uh, it's been really important to me that the more I do this podcast that I, I continue to practice as a fine artist and as a designer to like keep my skills sharp and, and to be able to talk to people on a peer to peer level. Um, so that said, do you ever get starstruck by people? Ah, do I ever get starstruck? It's very rare, to be honest. And I think, you know, it's not to sound jaded, but I think when you've done this yourself enough and uh, when you've been exposed to, to all aspects of the industry enough, you do get a little jaded. Like, uh, you know, a lot of the stories that we read about artists, those rags to riches stories or, you know, them driving around in these fancy cars, like you kind of see behind all of that and realize that yeah. they're just regular people just like you. So it is very rare, uh, but it does happen. I got a little starstruck when I interviewed um, Raphael Sadiq because that was somebody that I was like in Pampers watching on TV and like, you know, my, my mom used to play his music in the house when I was little and it was, it was weird having this 360 moment where I'm able to like speak to him and ask him about his craft. So I was a little starstruck with him. Um, I didn't interview Kendrick Lamar, but I met him a couple of years ago and that was probably the most starstruck I've ever been just because I'm a huge Kendrick Lamar fan and I've been following his career since he was in the mixtape circuit. So that was another like full circle. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting next to this guy. So it's rare, but it does happen. Right. Did you like feel tempted to be like, Hey, here's a link to my music. <laughs> <laughs> So, so oddly enough, uh, so it wasn't just Kendrick. I met like everybody on the TDE label at once, except uh -huh. for SZA. SZA wasn't there, but everybody else was there. And I was sitting between Kendrick and Schoolboy Q, and I had wow. interviewed Schoolboy Q. I had interviewed Schoolboy Q the year before, and so it was just so many things happening at once. I was kind of sitting looking at the two of them, like, I don't know what to say. Should I tell Schoolboy that I interviewed him last year? Do you think he'll remember me? Should I talk to Kendrick? Like, it was all just so overwhelming. All I could manage to squeak out in the end was a high. Like, I was so starstruck and stunned. Like, Kendrick looked up at me and he was like, hello. And I was like, hi. And that's all I could manage. Damn, go status. So, look, I, I want to talk about these whack rappers for a second. Um, <laughs> I know you got them sending. I could tell by the messaging on your site. Like, I don't respond <laughs> to unsolicited email. <laughs> yeah, I had, so, to, I had I, to put the disclaimer. <laughs> I, I know they be sending stuff. Have you ever had a whack rapper end up blowing up after they sent you stuff? Hmm, that is a good question. No, nobody in my inbox in terms of emailing me things, uh, you know, for me to listen to, but there have been a couple artists who I was wrong about. So Fetty Wap, when I first heard Fetty Wap's music, I predicted that he would be a huge flop. I didn't think he would have any success with uh, Trap Queen and the couple other tracks that he came out with. I was wrong about him and like happy to admit that. And like way back, so this was before I was writing in earnest, I was also wrong about Flow Rider. We'd gone to see him at Howard Homecoming, oh gosh, back in 2007, I want to say. 
and he was performing low and I'm like this guy is terrible like he, he was at the time like an opener and they were trying to like test him out with the crowd to see how he went over with people and I was like this guy's terrible and like the next month we saw him on BET and like blowing up everywhere and low went on to be this huge hit so um, those aren't rappers that have sent me things, but they are rappers that I've been wrong about. Most of the people that send me stuff in my inbox, like, I uh, haven't seen the light of day anywhere. So <laughs> it's not often that I'm wrong, but I was wrong about those those few artists. Right, right. I kind of um, saw Lady Gaga before she was big, and she did, like, a this radio, like, performance thing that they have every summer here. And I was like, man, this chick's weird. A year later, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> was the biggest thing ever. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah. So, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, and I'm always happy to admit when I'm wrong. That's the thing. Like, there isn't one critic alive who can predict every success with pinpoint accuracy, because especially in the social media era, our um, attitudes towards music and our tastes and preferences are so fickle, especially in the social media era. And I think now with social media, we are just as invested or we care just as much about the artist's like story um, and not just the music that they're making. So it's kind of hard in that environment to predict with accuracy like all of the people who are going to blow up like little nas x for instance is like a, a recent success story that i think is tied a lot to his kind of underdog persona and and all of the controversy that surrounded old town road in terms of these like old country execs just wanting to get him out the paint like i think that um galvanized the masses and earned him a lot of support that he wouldn't have otherwise uh gotten um, I think Cardi B is another success story like that, where people just like the story behind her. Um, and the music is um, an addition to that, but I don't think it's the thing that, that put her over the edge, or I don't think that was the tipping point for her. Right. So I noticed similarly, you, you mentioned that um, the box is, is this year's uh, Old Town Road. Uh, yeah. You feel, but with Roddy Rich is interesting because he doesn't, he's not like, an over-the-top character like a the baby or something like that yeah and I like that about him and I'm hoping so you know I think people put a lot of stock into the importance of social media and like you know you have to be popping on social media in order to get your career off the ground but I think people forget that in the grand scheme of like music history social media is a very small blip we've only really been using it in earnest for about the past 10 years um, and while, so I think it's uh, naive to say that it's not influential at all, but what I like about Roddy Rich is we're kind of seeing a return to just put your head down and make the music. And you can use social media as like a supplementary tool, but you don't have to be out there with all of the gimmicks and all of the like controversy and planting stories in the media. Like you can just make music that people want to listen to and that can be enough. So um, I'm hoping that he continues to upset people on the charts and continues to uh, chart because often what happens is one artist will be successful doing something one way or employing one method and then a bunch of other artists will jump on that same bandwagon and try to replicate that success. And if that means that artists will be pulling back from their social media antics and pull back from like always being out there and fighting for attention and everybody just gets back into the studio and focuses on making music that people want to listen to, then uh, that's a trend that I can get behind. So I hope he continues to upset people in the next couple of weeks. 
Yeah, yeah, I I was loving the uh, all the ire that um, occurred with uh, Old Town Road and um, <laughs> Bieber begging for streams uh, <laughs> in this Roddy Rich era. Um, so you're based in Toronto. Correct? Yes. Okay, cool. Yep. And where'd you grow up? Uh, born and raised in Toronto. I lived in London, Ontario for about, uh, I want to say six or seven years. And then, but I was born in Toronto. We moved to London when I was very young. And then we moved back to Toronto when I was 11. Uh, so I spent some time in London, but most of my life has been here in Toronto. Okay, cool. So, um, man, I love Toronto. It's, it's just one, it was one of my favorite cities. Uh, you know what though? I had a chance to move. Well, I didn't know. I'm, I stepped back. I was planning to move to Toronto after graduating and, uh, I went on some job interviews. I had like lined up a bunch of like information interviews at agencies. And then one of the creative directors told me, you're going to be, you're going to have a hard time as a black guy in this industry. Mm -hmm. Part of me was like, I appreciate the real talk. Thank you for being, keeping it, keeping a hundred with me. The other part of me was like, this sucks, yo. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I looking at Toronto. I'm like, I'm seeing all these brown people. I'm seeing all these black people. I'm seeing all these other races and cultures. This would be a place that would embrace me. And yeah, for a white guy to tell me that in a city like that, I was like, man, she, <laughs> I got uh, similar advice. I remember when, so when I applied to go to Harris, the Harris Institute, um, part of the application process is you have to sit with the director of your program. They have two programs and one is like audio engineering. The other one is arts management, which is a business course. And you have to sit with the director of your program and do like an entrance interview. Uh, and what they're trying to do there is just weed out the people who have stars in their eyes and like think that it's going to be an easy time and you're going to get to meet celebrities and like make a million dollars they're trying to weed those people out and select the people who are really serious about learning about the industry and 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 breaking into the industry so uh the director of the program he sat me down he asked me what i wanted to get out of get out of the program and what i wanted to do after i graduated and i told him i wanted to be an a and r and he shut me down. He was like, I'll tell you right now, there's only four A&Rs in this country. None of them are black. None of them are women. You're not going to be the first one. Like he, he told me straight. And it was, and like you said, I appreciated the real talk. I've never been one of those people to shy away from, you know, frank bluntness. I am also very frank and very blunt. And I appreciate when people can just, uh, you know, be honest with me. So I appreciated that. And it didn't deter me from, you know, pursuing a career in the music industry, but it was some good perspective. And I think um, it's a combination of kind of taking that advice with a grain of salt and, and making sure that it doesn't limit you, but also being very uh, clear about what you're up against, because there certainly are, uh, you know, barriers. Uh, for people of color, for black people in this city, there are certainly obstacles and uh, it can certainly be um, a very closed game in terms of uh, the gatekeepers in this industry and who allows whom to get to the top. It can be uh, pretty difficult. It's not to say that you shouldn't pursue your dreams or pursue a career, but I think it is also important to at least be aware of that because it will inform the way that you navigate this industry. Right, right. That's it. That's great advice actually 
uh, I'm glad it like it that didn't deflate me completely. It it for whatever reason though after that trip my whole plan to go to Toronto was just it was done. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I, and I'm still trying to figure out if that had something to do with it or if it was just I only visited Toronto in a party sense before, and then now I like looking at it as a place I'd have to work in. Was that? Is that yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I mean, as somebody who, like I said, is is born and raised here, say for like a quick uh, gap in that, like. I don't know. Toronto, in a lot of ways, is a great city. And, uh, you know, I haven't lived in very many other places in Canada for me to be able to compare. Um, But I'm not sure whether Toronto is where people need to be in order to succeed. Like, I feel like some people have this view as like, oh, I need to get to like the big city or I need to get to where all the action is happening, et cetera, in order to um, succeed. And I'm not sure how true that is, especially in this era of like... uh, we're kind of living in this like global digital era where I can easily send files to somebody anywhere in the world. Like even looking at how I linked up with all these people in Bermuda, I know so many people from Bermuda and I have never been there. And it's, it's strictly from, like I had a huge uh, support base when I was making music. Most of my listenership was like in Bermuda and places I'd never been to. So I'm not sure that you need to be here in order to succeed or in order to advance your career. And I mean, right now, Living in Toronto, uh, I just saw a couple of reports that were published today that it's like one of the most severely uh, expensive places to live. Um, it's 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 rough out here, and I'm not sure whether you know people need to be out here and put themselves in a situation where they can barely afford their rent in order to succeed. I think there are other uh, more effective ways to do that, but it's not to discourage anybody who wants to come out here. What I'm saying is if for some reason you change your plan or like coming to Toronto is impossible for you at the moment, et cetera, you can still uh, get ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. So um, I actually, the tweet that made me say, you know what, I got to just get you on here and, and, uh, and, and just break some, some social commentary down with you. (laughs) <laughs> a, a young woman who I believe is a writer um, made a tweet basically implying that if your partner or your friends don't read your work, you shouldn't mess with them anymore. You should like leave. <laughs> case may be. And you were kind of subtweeting. And I'm like, <laughs> so what, what, I want to break, I want to break that down. So how do you feel about this idea that you're, your uh, romantic partner has to read your stuff. Otherwise, you know, (laughs) know, get them out of here. Yeah, I think that is absurd. Absurd. And like, um, like I said, I've always been a creative and I've always done this in many different capacities. And when I was really active in the performing scene and like, you know, making music, et cetera, I never expected my friends or my family to attend my shows or to listen to my mix tapes or so it's not just and like even now I don't expect them to read the articles that I write or to listen to every radio appearance or watch every tv appearance that I do like I think it's absurd to put that expectation on people I think it is wonderful uh when friends and family you know read your articles or they listen to something and I think you know for me personally I really do like to make the people that I love proud so it does 
bring me great pleasure to hear, you know, my mom say, that was a great radio segment or, you know, for my friends to say they're proud of me about an article that I just published, et cetera. But I don't put the expectation on them to consume every piece of art or every piece of writing that I produce. I think it's unrealistic. Um, and I think people are quick to label somebody, you know, buying your art or listening to your music or reading your article as support. And that is one form of support. It's true, but it is not the only or the most important part uh, or piece of support. I think support looks like many different things. And I think um, it is realistic to expect your friends and your family, your loved ones to support you. But I think we need to remember as creatives that support looks like a lot of different things. Uh, support could be, you know, your computer crashed in the middle of writing a 200 word feature or not, sorry, not 200, 2000 word feature and you need a new computer and your friends rally together to get you another one the next day. That is support. Or people just simply reminding you, hey, take a break and like eat something. You've been writing for six hours straight and you haven't done anything. Or a simple text in the morning like, hey, I know you're about to interview this really big artist and you're nervous. You're going to knock them dead. Like, do great. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways to support people. And I think it's, it's unrealistic and it's pretty harsh to put the expectation on anyone that the only way that they can support you is to consume everything that you create. Especially because you know, we as creative, creatives, not everything we produce is going to be perfect. There's going to be some real blunders along the way. Why subject people to that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there are a lot of different ways to support people. And um, I think putting it in such a narrow box and saying it's like either this or nothing is like super harsh. Yeah, I, I agree 100% because I'm like, A, half the time, the, my friends and family are not my target market for the thing. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, I, I can't expect, I don't want them to fake enjoy it. If, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. If they're your friends and, and family and they love you, of course they're going to love everything you put out. They may not understand what the point of it was or what you were getting at. Um, and like you said, it's because they're not your target market or they may not be interested in what you're writing about at all. And it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what their particular interests and area of expertise are. Like my mom doesn't know half of the rappers that I talk about or write about. She doesn't know who they are. She doesn't listen to their music. So her reading those articles like does nothing for her. Or I have a lot of friends who aren't into hip hop at all. And so it's like I get really granular in some of my articles or some of my uh, interviews or reviews and they don't understand it. So they're not going to read it. Like you said, they're not my target audience, but they are going to, oh, you know, that was really great. I'm proud of you, et cetera, because it's me, not because of the thing that I wrote. So I also think you're setting yourself up for failure if you're only looking to a circle of yes men who are automatically going to love everything you do because they love you and they want to, you know, make you feel good. Um, but you set yourself up for failure that way. If you just surround yourself with these yes men who are like, yeah, I loved everything. It was great. And can't give you like critical feedback. Um, so I think it's, I don't know. I think uh, it, it is a harsh expectation to put on anyone that, that they have to be your biggest cheerleader in the form of, you know, reading everything that you write or listening to every single crappy song that you put out. Like there are many yeah. different ways to support people that don't involve consuming even your like crappiest pieces of art. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like you said, like those are the people who, you know, maybe they didn't read your latest, latest thing or listen to your latest song, but 
you're in crisis mode, they're there to help you out, which is more important. Like, you know, like I'd, I'd rather have them be there for crisis. And, and, and Exactly. And, and sometimes too, I think there's value in having people who don't know or care about anything that you do in terms of the art that you're making, especially if you're doing it for a living. You want people that you can come to to just decompress. Um, at the end of the day and talk about something that has nothing to do with what it is you're working on. Like you kind of need a break. And I think uh, friends and family serve an important purpose there as well is like, you know, I think about my friends and what they do for a living half of them. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is they do. I have a vague idea, but in terms of the minutia, like, I don't know what they do, but it's mm. kind of nice to be able to come home from work at the end of the day and be like, let's talk about something where we actually have common ground and like something that we both have interest in, or let's just, you know, take a step away from work for a while and just be friends, just like laugh with each other. And it doesn't have to be about your work at all. And that too is a form of support, like people who can just, you know, uh, keep you balanced and keep you in good spirits when you are going through those mini crises. And it's like, oh my gosh, like I've written every word that I think I can write. Like, I don't know where to go from here. I'm really stuck. It's nice to have somebody to just decompress and not think about the work for a while. So I think, um, you know, there's different friends for different things. Our spouses serve uh, different purposes as well. Um, if it's feedback on your art that you're really looking for, go to your editors or go to the people who actually read your stuff in earnest or what, like look for that validation or that critique elsewhere. But I don't think your friends have to be that person. It's nice if they are, and it's nice if you can, uh, you know, share that in common and they can give you honest feedback. And I certainly do have like writer friends who can give me that critical feedback and that's important and I appreciate it, but I don't think that's the only purpose that my friends and family serve in my life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So people don't be that person that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I think, I think you, you do yourself a disservice if that is the condition that you put on all of your friendship. So then what you're saying is like, I'm never going to talk to this person or I'm never going to form a relationship with anybody. If they don't support this part of my work, you're alienating yourself. Like that's a great way to set yourself up for um, either friendships that aren't very sincere or genuine or to just set yourself up to be alone. Like that's such a harsh condition on a friendship. Yeah. You're throwing away a lot of potential important people. There are lots of people who, support my work in terms of buying or you know whatever you want to call it or retweets or whatever the case may be but you know they're not going to be there when my house floods or something so right you know like let, let's 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 cut our friends some slack <laughs> right and i think it's a comfort to know that you know if this all knock on wood collapses tomorrow and I never write another article and I never do another TV appearance and like I never record another song, my friends will still be my friends. My family will still be my family. They were all there for me before I started pursuing this as a career and they will be there long after. It's kind of nice to know that I'm not defined by, you know, a very important part of myself, but it is just one aspect of myself. My art is not my entire life. And I think that's another thing a lot of creators kind of fall down that rabbit hole. Like, 
creating art or, you know, writing any type of art is a very personal endeavor. It is a part of you. But I think some people wrap their identity too tightly in that. And it's like, what happens if tomorrow, God forbid, you're unable to create art anymore? You're unable to do this thing that you've defined yourself by. Like, what do you have after that? So hmm. I think it's nice to have people who don't define you by by that and don't judge you by that if I were to stop writing tomorrow never write another thing my friends would still be my friends my family would still be my family they would still love and support me in whatever I do and I think that's super valuable and important if you build an entire circle of friends and a support system uh, around this one aspect of your life then what happens when you lose it if all of your friends only flock to you because they like your writing if you never write another thing do, do you lose all of your friends too, you know? So I think it's important to define yourself by something intrinsic rather than these external things like art. I think, like I said, people wrap their identity way too tightly in this aspect. And it is a very personal endeavor and I get how it feels like this is a part of me and it is, but it is just a part of you. It is not who you are. And I think that can help uh, some people in their relationships to remember that, that this is not who you are. This is not all that you're worth. Right. So there was another thing I wanted to get your perspective on. I'm kind of torn in how I feel about this. So I don't know. If, <laughs> have you heard about Tyler Perry um, sort of bragging about not having a room? Yes. <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel about this? So, yeah. Tyler Perry is a perfect example of kind of creating that uh, environment of yes men and his crappy movies that keep deteriorating over time is a testament to what happens when you surround yourself with yes men and people who never object and never uh, challenge you in any way. And it's funny with this new movie, A Fall from Grace, which I've seen and like, spoiler alert, it's terrible. Okay, um, it's so just funny. <laughs> people tell me they love it. I mean, so... I will say there is an audience uh, for which Tyler Perry creates his art for, and I think there are certain uh, there's a certain audience who will always support everything that Tyler Perry puts out. And like my my uh, stance on art as a whole, uh, because I get it a lot in music where it's like, oh, you know, mumble rap and like hip hop isn't what it used to be, and like music isn't what it used to be. But my opinion is there is uh, room for it all. There's something for everyone, and there are people out there who love like the old town roads, et cetera. And like, why not let them enjoy that? There's room for it all. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Tyler Perry, uh, excuse me, like I said, will always have, there is an audience who will always support his movies and always uh, like his movies. And that's okay. He's making it for them, but it certainly wasn't for me. And mm -hmm. I knew that going into it. I knew that going into it. You kind of uh, know what to expect with Tyler Perry. And in my opinion, A Fall from Grace and some of the movies that he's made in recent times, I haven't watched them all, but I did watch A Fall from Grace, and I can say that is the result of not having enough people around him to challenge him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, like, uh, I'll, I'll clear it up a little bit. So, basically, if for people who don't know, so basically Tyler Perry <laughs> recently got on Instagram, and he kind of, like, panned around his office, and you could see this mountain of scripts that he had been uh, working on and basically he said that like he writes everything himself and <laughs> a lot of um black writers uh got upset because they were like well you know you could be hiring other black writers to 
to um, to jump on your films and, and to help out. And on top of that, you know, like the stuff that A Harmony's mentioning is that his some of his writing there have been some some plot holes in some of the the films that that people are like well that could be resolved if you just you have enough money you have enough success that you could hire the um, best of the best in terms of writing and if you insisted on helping black creatives you could do that if, if that's what you wanted to do um, I I'm torn about it in terms of the fact that I almost get why he does it and I don't it may be an ego thing I don't know but I think of it from the perspective of if I, when I run my business, I really enjoy the design side of it. So I'm like, if I could pay people to do all the stuff I don't like, and I only get to do the things that I actually like, which is the designing, maybe I do that. And for him, maybe he likes writing the most. So that's maybe why he does all of the writing and it's worked for him so far. But that said, <laughs> <laughs> the the quality isn't always there so uh, if it was me I would just I would hire a team and pick and choose which ones I would work on and still let the creative uses flow but but try to up up that quality overall but <laughs> well yeah, with Tyler Perry, um, and I think that's one thing we have to realize is that everybody's motivations differ and not everybody has the same goal or the same motivations. And I think with Tyler Perry, it is clear that his motivation is to make money and, you know, he may very well enjoy the writing aspect. And so he just wants to write and make money. And, uh, you know, I am not sure whether at this stage in his career, he can really look at the films that he's making and say that they're high quality or the shows that he's making and say that they're high quality. Maybe he does think that in his mind, but I feel as though he realizes that he's making these like really cheesy and poorly done movies and he just doesn't care. Cause I think his main motivation is to make the money. It's just put his name over a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, there are other people who are more interested in just becoming a better creator. Um, and I think part of that is opening yourself up to critique, but also opening yourself up to collaboration and just like learning from people. We kind of mentioned at the beginning of this discussion that it's a lifelong learning process. You can go to school and get a million degrees and do like certificate programs and work in all aspects of the industry, do internships, et cetera. But there is always something more to learn. Um, and it, it, it's apparent to me that Tyler Perry is not interested in learning and it's kind of like, okay, that's, that's fine. Like not everybody is in it to make, you know, fine art or high quality film. Um, I think he gets into trouble or he, he, uh, starts deluding himself when he thinks that he can do it all, that he can just kind of shut everybody else out and make these really cheesy movies and make a lot of money off of them and have them be really great without anybody else's help. I think that's where he might start to delude himself. But to be frank, I think if quality was what he was after, he would have opened that writer's room a long time ago, or he would have done something to better himself. And he doesn't seem interested in doing that, to be honest. Like, a fall from grace was really lazy, I, you know, and it made me wonder whether he's ever like read a book or, or done anything wow. to improve. And I'm not, it's, and I'm, Hey, it sounds harsh. I mean, I mean, I have a reputation and I've always been like this of just being really harsh. And it's not that it's kind of like, I say what other people are thinking and just don't want to say out loud. Like, 
it made me wonder whether he's ever read a book or like watched any other film other than his own or done anything over the past however many years to improve himself. He almost seems to be like regressing, um, which just says to me he hasn't done anything to develop his craft. Um, and again, he might not be interested in doing that because every time he puts out a movie, people watch and he makes money and that could be all he's interested in. And I don't knock people for that, but I think, uh, you know, the rest of us kind of have to be aware that not everyone's motivations are the same. Um, and I'm not sure that his motivation is to improve or that that is his top priority. Mm-hmm. Damn, major, major TP slander on there. <laughs> <laughs> he can come for me if he wants to. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, shout out, shout out to Tyler Perry. I mean, he's he's achieved a lot of success, um, and congrats, congrats to him. We, um, but yeah, I, I I get I get what you're saying on many levels. Yeah, and and to be honest, again, like I don't necessarily knock it. It's like to me, it's like, just decide what is important to you and go after that. So if yeah. making money is important to you and this is the way you're happy doing it, more power to you. Again, I think there is room for it all. And we don't necessarily have to look to Tyler Perry to make the next Oscar award-winning film. Like, we can look to somebody else for that and just, uh, you know, Tyler Perry has a lane that he stays within. And I think, you know, I respect it in that regard. So it's not knocking him you know make your money and if this is the way that you're happy doing it then do it but um yeah. you know at the same time again I've kind of like his films are not for me and I know that and that's fine he doesn't have to make films for me and he can he can make his money and I can watch the films that I want to and everybody can be fine like he doesn't have to yeah. change anything about what he's doing if he doesn't want to yeah exactly like he found his lane he he caters to that lane and he keeps he keeps milking it and it's yeah, right. <laughs> it is what it is. So why why are you the Claire Huxtable of hip hop? <laughs> That's interesting. So the Claire Huxtable of hip hop was a moniker that I came up with a long time ago. And to be honest, uh, the views that uh, motivated me to dub myself the Claire Huxtable of hip hop have kind of changed over time. And now I, I, it's kind of like a way I poke fun of myself. But when I was first coming up as an MC, uh, that was a nickname that I gave myself because I was supposed to be like the antithesis to like um, the Nicki Minaj's of the world. And like, it was, it was rooted in respectability politics that I don't mm -hmm. subscribe to anymore, but I still love Claire Huxtable as a character on the Cosby show. And my thing was always, you know, if Claire could rap, she would sound like me kind of thing, which is still semi true, but I admit it was rooted in respectability politics that I don't subscribe to anymore, but I still love Claire and I still think it's cute. And I paid a lot of money for that logo. So I'm not changing it anytime soon. <laughs> So, like, uh, yeah, you, you're talking about the, the I'm kind of the same, actually, like, in terms of respectability politics. I mean, I grew up in a very conservative culture where that that is, like, kind of over your head a lot. And mm -hmm. I'm now at the point where I just don't subscribe to most of that. Any, any, yep. Um, I, I feel like it does more to hold people down than it does to, to free us. Um, I agree. Yeah, and and I saw you 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 did a piece on like um like the hot girl summer movement recently and and the Megan mm -hmm. of of the world and all of that. How do you feel that like 
man, this is a bigger topic than maybe just this. <laughs> but like, uh, like, I'm so fascinated. So I'm, I have a, I have a torn relationship with hip hop. Hip hop, I only listen to rap. I don't really listen to anything else. Um, yeah. To be honest. Uh, you know, little bits of stuff here and there, but for the most part, I'm a hip hop fan. But as a a, pan, a, a person that is also very um, socially aware and very much like very interested in gender equality and and fighting misogyny and fighting uh, homophobia and and challenging traditional male representation in society, hip hop is way kind of behind the curve in that. But yet still this music is what speaks to me most. So I, I have this, this weird relationship with it. Um, how do you kind of feel about, about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always had that weird relationship with hip hop and um, Ava DuVernay, although the quote uh, escapes me exactly what it is she said, but I remember when Straight Outta Compton uh, came out and she said something to the effect of being a woman who loves hip hop and knowing that the people who create it and a lot of the songs that are made that they don't love you as a black woman is, is a hard yeah. road to navigate. And that's always been you know, my relationship with hip hop. I love this music, although the music didn't always love me back. And going back to the Claire Huxtable of hip hop, like that is certainly part of the reason why I dubbed myself that because at that age, I knew that if I wanted, uh, if I wanted to navigate within the world of hip hop, I kind of had to fit the box that men wanted to see me in. And men like can't stand the Nicki Minaj's and the Megan the Stallions of the world because these are women who are owning their sexuality and they have a lot of agency and they're exercising it and not necessarily centering men in their narratives, which is what I talked about in that Hot Girl Summer piece. And men, that makes them uncomfortable because hip hop has certainly been an incubator for a lot of misogynistic uh, male-centered views that aren't, uh, that are sometimes harmful toward women. So for me, the Claire Huxtable was like, hey man, I know that you're resistant to women kind of entering your arena unless they fit a specific box, unless they conduct themselves in a certain way. So let me be that person so you let me in the gate. And I mean, we see it all the time. I kind of entered the world of hip hop within like an all male crew and I was like the first lady of their collective kind of thing, which is what we often see with women. It's like, unless there's a man kind of ushering you in, you're shut out and you're ostracized and you're picked on and um, you kind of need that male approval. Um, I'm happy to see that hip hop is kind of shifting out of that. And although I think they're still behind in a lot of ways, I think we are a lot, um, this is probably the most progressive we've ever been in hip hop, in my opinion. And that absolutely. was part of what I was dissecting. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, and I think that's part of what I was dissecting in that Hot Girl Summer essay is like, finally, we have an artist, um, a, a bevy of artists, not just one, like a bunch of women who are succeeding, who are having fun, and who are owning their narratives. They are, you know, putting themselves first in their music and not concerned with the male gaze and not concerned about uh, being escorted into hip hop with a man and like uh, getting a man's approval to do anything. Like we're finally breaking free of those chains, uh, which is something I can't say for a lot of, uh, excuse me, female artists of past decades. A lot of them subscribe to these toxic masculine views, whether or not they knew it. Um, and I think for a long time, 
women were supposed to be satisfied with just having a woman's presence in the industry. It didn't matter what she was saying. It didn't matter if a guy was writing her rhymes and she was just regurgitating them. Like we were just supposed to be happy to be there. But now it's like, not only are we here, we're talking about stuff that doesn't concern anybody else but us. And like, we're, we're talking about our own stories and we're celebrating ourselves. And we don't care if the men feel uncomfortable when they hear this, like this is our time. And I'm really happy to see that and hope that's a trend that continues. But, um, yeah, being a fan of hip-hop, like, I still love, you know, Biggie. I still love Jay-Z. I still love a lot of artists who weren't necessarily uh, concerned with how women felt about their music and, and often made some pretty damaging uh, music. And it is a hard road to navigate. And I still don't have answers in terms of how we do that. But I think there are a lot more options now for people who want to engage with hip-hop but don't want to wrestle with that icky feeling. Right, right. Do you, something that, that has started to aggravate me that never used to before, and I think it's part of my sort of social awakening, is this concept of, like you said, um, uh, women sort of being uh, proxy to male. So we do this thing where we say, who's your top five MCs? <laughs> and then we say, who's your top five female MCs? You know, yep, like, yep. why can't we just talk about top five MCs and it doesn't matter what gender they are? Exactly, exactly. I had written an, um, an essay about that uh, probably a year or going on two years ago where I talked about uh, women in hip hop and the next phase in terms of incorporating or, uh, you know, making hip hop more equitable for women is allowing them into the four in their full uh, selves. Um, and so I talked a lot about uh, some of the differences I've noticed in terms of the way that we treat uh, women who rap um, in the ways that we critique them as well. I think there are a lot of crappy uh, women who rap who've been uh, elevated to a status that they probably shouldn't have just because they are women. And I illustrate the ways in which that is just as damaging as shutting them out completely. And I was saying, you know, without that fair and honest critique, without us being just as uh, tough on our women who rap as we are with men, we won't get a Pulitzer winning uh, woman MC uh, the same way that we did with Kendrick. You know what I mean? We have to demand yeah. greatness from both sexes or both genders regardless. Um, and same thing, exactly. Stop calling women who rap female MCs and femcs, et cetera. Like, call them MCs and be more conscious about just allowing them into the fore in their full iteration. And I think um, with that, you also have to allow women to critique women artists the same way that we do with men. I know when I was kind of coming up in hip hop and I used to get into a lot of arguments with women and men um, because I wasn't like a huge Nicki Minaj fan when she was first coming up. I thought there were MCs out there that were better than her. And I used to get a lot of flack for saying that I wasn't a fan because I would get a lot of like, you know, she's a woman, she's in this industry and she's doing it and you have to like her because she's making this music for you, et cetera. And we never put that kind of uh, expectation on men. Mm. Um, I remember I got into a pretty huge heated argument with Ninth Wonder on Twitter because oh. I'm not a Rhapsody fan. I never have been a Rhapsody fan and I'm pretty vocal about not being a Rhapsody fan and he like jumped down my throat and was like, she's making this music for you and like, you know, you gotta like her because she's a woman in this industry and she's doing it and blah, blah, blah and she's doing it for you and I'm like, 
imagine me coming to you and telling you that you have to like every single male rapper that comes out just because they're a dude like what kind of limitation is that that is also an issue and so I feel like we're at this crux in hip-hop now where um, it's great that there are more women uh, at the forefront there's more women making music in this industry and that we're owning our narratives etc but I think the next step to normalize women in hip-hop so much that when I ask somebody, who are your top five MCs, Jean Grey's name comes up, Megan Thee Stallion's name comes up, Rhapsody, if you like her, her name comes up, alongside the Kendricks, the J. Coles, the Jay-Zs, Andre 3000, whoever your top five might be, and that we don't have to add that qualifier, who's your favorite female MC, or um, create this kind of split economy where male rappers are considered rappers, period, and then women rappers have their own little subsection in hip-hop. I want to get to a point where uh, women who rap were no longer considered like a sub-genre within the larger genre of hip-hop. Mm, I love it. And Jean Grey, underrated MC. And <laughs> she is. I love her. I've always loved Jean. Probably one of the best rap names as well <laughs> absolutely and just in, in terms of her skill i think she's one of the best mcs i've ever heard period male female like whatever she's one of the best people to ever do it and i would just like to see us get to a point and i i, I also so again going back to that whole claire huxtable thing like as i started to mature and like awaken in certain areas of my life i started to really become uncomfortable with the ways in which uh women who rap are like separated so it's like you have a column of uh good or respectable rappers who like never show skin and never talk about sex and blah 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 mm -hmm. like these are the the women rappers that are allowed and like the women rappers who were despised were the ones who you know rapped about having fun or like having sex had sexual agency showed their skin whatever like they're vilified and i think we're still seeing that like with the rise of megan the stallion and some people can't stand her and it's all rooted and then they'll pit like megan and rhapsody against each other and say like rhapsody's more respectable and you know it's it's I would like to see us move away from that, and I would like to see us create room for all kinds of different women, because we all come from different backgrounds, we have different stories, and I, you know, as I got older and I started to learn, really started to reject the idea that there is, like, one better than the other, or there's only one way to conduct yourself. Again, that's, like, rooted in respectability, and I'm not sure how beneficial that mentality is, and so yeah. I would like to see all kinds of women, all kinds of stories. Like, I, as long as you're being authentic and being true to yourself and bringing your story to the fore, I think uh, that's what we need. We need lots of people to be telling their authentic, genuine stories. Um, I think that's how we'll get to a place where things are more equitable. Equitable. We have to make room for everyone and a lot of different narratives and be comfortable with those narratives not always centering us. Like I'm a straight black woman, but there are queer rappers out there who have stories to tell and we need to hear those as well. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? It can't all just be one narrative, especially in a genre like hip hop where there's already uh, so much innovation and so many stories to tell. I think it's time to kind of open the floor to a lot of different voices, uh, different aesthetics, uh, different stories, different narratives, and, and just open it up some more. Yeah, I think the art form um, will benefit from that. And um, I, I've, I am one of those, I'm weird because I'm, I'm old to think this way. It seems like all of the people in my generation turned into the old people from the generations before me. 
<laughs> the you get know, off my lawn generation. Yeah, like I remember coming up <laughs> and people saying, "Oh, that rap you guys listen to today—that's not rap music. That's yeah, uh, this and yep. big chains and baggy pants and what's that all about? This is real rap." And now, <laughs> guys my age and girls too—I should I should say—people uh, um, are doing the same thing with with the generation today. Yep, because they don't understand it. But I think now with with these different perspectives that are coming in, like it's it's good. It's good. And and like you said, not just the style changing, but the voices, the types of voices. Yep. Um, absolutely. And we need it. It's it's the only it, absolutely. way absolutely like the art form and will die if it doesn't evolve. Exactly. Exactly. And I think um that's one thing I'm really happy to see in this uh new generation of artists is that they are a lot less concerned with gatekeeping than our uh, generation was or is. And I think, you know, hip hop is still a, a relatively young genre. And I think some of that like protectionist attitude just comes from, you know, we, we've seen this thing from its infancy and we've seen it grow into what it is now. And there's a bit of like a protective, it's like, you know, being a parent and being really protective over your child. I think that's mm -hmm. part of where it's coming from. But um, I'm really happy to see that the younger generations are a lot less concerned with, um, you know, being so protective that they end up stifling hip hop growth. I'm really glad to see that that's not carrying forward into this generation. In that um, Hot Girl Summer essay, I talk a little bit about um, Saweetie's video for my type. And what I really loved about that video is she made such a bold statement, but she didn't make a big deal out of it. It was like women and men dancing at a, cook a cookout and everybody's dressed how they want to dress and everybody's dancing and having fun. And it was like everyone on equal footing. Um, and I really like that she used that P.D. Pablo sample. I went back to look at uh, the Freak Elite video and listen to that song. And it was just so interesting to me how the genders were treated in his video and his song versus Saweetie's update. Um, P.D. Pablo was very stereotypical. Women were props. The only time you heard the woman's voice in that song was when she's asking Petey how you like it, daddy. Mm. Whereas Sweetie's song, like, she's talking about what she likes and she's not asking. She's telling you what she likes. And the video, if you look at it closely, is like men and women dancing. Neither one is being used as an object. They're both kind of on equal footing, having just as much fun at this event. And it was like a, a really free thing. And she wasn't making a big deal out of it like, oh, you know, look what I've done. It was just kind of like, this is where we are now and it's not that big of a deal. And I like to see that. I like to see us just normalize these things. Cause I think we do ourselves a disservice when we also make a big deal out of things like uh, make a big deal out of people's sexuality or make a big deal out of the, um, the fact that they're women and they're rapping or whatever the case may be. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we start to put that on a pedestal and treat it as though it's this like unique, um, isolated incident or experience i think we just need to bring those into the fore and just get used to seeing them and not make it a big deal kind of thing so yeah. i was really happy to see that video and how she updated it and i would like to see hip-hop continue in that trend where we just invite more voices we invite more narratives and everything is is more equitable and it, it's equal but it's not you know look at this thing i've done or making it such a big deal this woman rapper just did xyz like let's just normalize it mm-hmm yeah yeah, I, I, I agree. It's very troubling to, to kind of look back at those old videos and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> damn, damn, damn. I know. <laughs> and it's like, I know there's, 
I know there's a lot of stuff that I cringe at, but at the same time, it's like, that was the era that we were in. And at the time that was in, and that's what we did. However, I think it's important to be able to just look back at things like that was a moment in time and that moment is over now. And we, we, this is the era that we're living in now. Like, I think it's okay to just look back at some of those things we did and some of those views we had and just accept it as a moment in time. But I think to try and carry some of those ideals into the present moment and, and, and resist all of the changes that have happened by holding on to these like antiquated ideals, I think that's where we run into trouble. So um, I, I think, you know, I cringe at a lot of stuff. I cringe at hairstyles that I had like 15, 20 years ago, but it's kind of like, that was the in thing to do at the time. I was very on, on brand and like in fashion at that time, but that's over. I'm not going to rock a Jerry Curl in 2020. Right. You know? So it's like, accept it as a moment in time but move forward and that is like you said how you keep the the genre alive and help it to continue to thrive and to grow is by letting it evolve right right so what uh what what hip-hop artists are you most excited there's like one artist right now you're most excited about Ooh, just one. Oh, well there's more than uh... one <laughs> I know there's there's always more than one for me. I can never just narrow this down. So I am excited about Roddy Rich again because I think he's going to upset a lot of people on the charts uh, at least for the first quarter and I'm really looking forward to seeing him do that. Um I'm a huge Pop Smoke fan and I think that he could have a big year this year. I'm just waiting to see what he does. Um but he's having a pretty good run so far so hopefully he can keep it going. Um, and then I also listen to a lot of R&B, like uh, Moses Sumney's coming out with something this year, and I'm really excited to hear that. Thundercat's coming out with new music in April, and I'm super excited. Um, and then I'm always a Kendrick Lamar fan. Anything that he does, I pretty much love. So mm. um, those are the few. I, if you ask me this next week, I'm sure my answer will change completely. But <laughs> those are the few that I kind of have my, my eye and my ear out for. Still okay. really listening to Megan Thee Stallion a lot, too. I really love her. Okay, interesting, interesting. <laughs> so what advice would you give uh, a hip-hop artist or R&B artist, for that matter, trying to make it? Yeah, uh, learn the business. Uh, and don't learn the business from, like, Reddit threads on the Internet. If you can get into a school, then I would recommend doing that. And if not, try your best to attach yourself to people who are doing this and learn from them. But I don't think you can ever learn too much about this industry, and especially right now because it's just rapidly evolving and rapidly changing. And make an earnest effort to learn it. Um, one thing that really irritates me, and I can say it's the same sentiment for a lot of my writer friends, is people who just like randomly DM you on Twitter and it's like, oh, listen to my music or, you know, listen to it with no relationship established. Like really take the time to get to know people and get to learn the industry that you're in. If you can do an internship, if you can shadow someone, um, even if you read like everything that Billboard has ever written about like the top executives, just learn as much as you can about this industry. Learn about the people you're trying to build connections with um get out there go to events shake hands like actually establish real connections with people i can't stress enough how valuable that is because i am not sure like a lot of the artists that contact me i'm not sure that they are aware of how much noise they're competing against um and you can't stand out if you have an established relationship with people so learn as much as you can from people and no matter how big you get 
never get so big that you don't think there's anything left to learn. There is always something uh, to learn. There's always ways to improve. Uh, so keep, keep doing that. That's and, great and you really do. Yeah. And, and my other piece of advice is you really do have to love what it is you're doing because it is not easy. And if you're in it for any other reason than the love of the craft then get out, please get out. Cause <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a terrible industry to be in if you just want to be famous or if you just want to make a lot of money. Like there are a million other ways you can do that. You have to, the love of the craft is what's going to sustain you through the million rough nights that you're going to have before your big break. Uh, so you really have to love what it is you're doing. Like really love it. Yeah. That, that goes for across <laughs> the board with this stuff. Cause I'm telling yep. you, I've been going through it with this business. Uh. Of course, <laughs> of course. And that's the thing. Like I, I am still, I still feel like my writing career is in its infancy and I still feel like my career in the music industry in general has been that it's in its infancy, but I've been doing this in earnest for like 13 years now. And I have, you know, recorded music, I've performed, I've volunteered at festivals, I've uh, interned at music publishers, I went to school for this, like, I, I've done a lot of stuff, and I'm still, you know, um, establishing myself, so it's, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but they say there's no such thing as an overnight success, and that is true, like, if you're in it just to be famous, just to get a million views, just to be, like, rich, you're in the wrong field you really have to love what it is you're doing because there it's there's a lot of hard work involved and a lot of sacrifice and the only way it's going to feel gratifying to you is if you truly love what you're doing yeah you know I love that you're so positive about it because it, I mean I'm coming back around to being positive but in the last month or so I've been on like I'm like on year 13 year 14 of this and it's starting to get to me a bit and I was like yeah I hit a wall where I was like this fucking thing ever gonna like you know, <laughs> pop off the way I want it to pop off? But then I'm like, for I'm, sure. The the expectations I'm setting maybe are not, um, you know, helping. Uh, maybe maybe I am doing what I need to do, and I just need to keep doing it. And, and keep yeah, and I I think you know, um, never stop dreaming big. Always dream big, and always set those really like huge impossible goals I'm a huge fan of setting like really ridiculous goals and like people will laugh at me but I still set like really ridiculous goals and I, I say never stop doing that but also learn to celebrate the small wins yeah um because I think that that will also sustain you um so celebrate everything and I have found like it's true what they say about gratitude like the more grateful you are for where you are right now the more opportunities come your way like um, so celebrate every article, even if it's just a 150 word review and like nobody read it, celebrate that it was published and like celebrate your first paid article and celebrate your first interview with an artist and like just celebrate your small wins because they do add up the only way to get to a big win. It, a big win is just uh, a culmination of a lot of small wins kind of thing. So celebrate every moment. Don't don't stop setting those really big kind of pie in the sky goals, but appreciate every step toward that goal as well. Facts. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so what's next for you? What's the big thing coming up? What is next for me? So uh, I'm working on an interview right now that I can't talk about until it's published, but I'm very excited about it. Okay. Um, 
what is next for me in like a uh, pie in the sky type of view is that one day I will have written uh, Kendrick Lamar's biography. It will be as told to a harmony. That is one of my big pie in the sky goals that will happen. And I'm inching towards that with every article that I write and every appearance that I make. So that's a pie in the sky thing. But um, right now I'm working on an interview. Uh, there is a release date that is uh, toying with the publication date of that article, but uh, sometime within this quarter, it'll be out. Um, and then, yeah, just reviewing albums. Uh, I'll be on cue again on Monday. I'm not sure when you're posting this, but I'll be on cue again soon talking about uh, Grammy stuff. And yeah, that's what's up with me. All right. It's in the universe, folks. She's going to write there that. There you go. It's, it's <laughs> been recorded now. I have big, big shoes to fill. But it'll happen. I don't know when, but it will happen. Okay. So how can my people find you online? Um, <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at aharmonymusic. Um, you know, just talking my BS like I did to get on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And then my, my website is justharms.com, J-U-S-T-H-A-R-M-Z.com. Thank you. And I encourage you, y'all, to check out her website, read her articles, listen to her, her um, pieces on Q, very on-point perspectives. So I, I think you'll enjoy. A thank Harmony, you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on our page, man. Really enjoyed thank it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So all these years is the first time I actually uh, had a conversation with you. I uh, know. Look at that. Full circle. It only <laughs> took us like 13 or 14 years. Look at that. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pavement Podcast. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.